0: We're going to turn to Exodus 25 today, and uh, I'm going to do this slightly differently than I often do. I'm not going to read the entire section from the beginning. Uh, I'm going to read the section as we go in order to fit it to the various points that we have Um want to connect the dots for you remember chapter 24 where we were last week it was a it was a covenant renewal ceremony God was reminding his people that he was present with them and we went through the fact that every single element of worship is really present Uh, perhaps every single element to continue to remember that that's what we do every week here But we're coming to a point of transition in the book. Chapters 25 through 31, God's going to give instructions about the tabernacle. And in the midst of the great detail that we find here, we do not forget that all of this detail is meant for God to continue to tell us about Himself. So, in the text that we read this morning, we'll simply begin with prayer, and then we'll transition. Let's pray. God, unless we have your Holy Spirit, the opening of your Word is uh, simply black and white on a paper, and it is a man standing to speak. But Father, with the ministry of your Holy Spirit, uh, you send forth your Word in power. And so we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would meet us, And make yourself known to us. But regard, I mean, push away distractions so that we will be attentive to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It wasn't long after I moved into my house here in Auburn that I was climbing up on a bookcase one day. And I I found at the top there a, a set of blueprints that were the blueprints to the house that I purchased Uh, And you could open them up, and and I've gone back to look at them a few times just to see what kind of changes they made to the original plans. There was a wall here that wasn't originally in the plans. The the garage, which was drawn in on the side of the house, is actually built under the house now. uh, One thing's for sure, not only do I not know what I'm looking at when I look at these, I can't really understand them. The other fact that's true is that they are full of details and those specifications matter. With blueprints, you can generally tell what the house is supposed to look like, and it is good, you might say, for detail. But the thing that you cannot tell when you open up blueprints is anything about the heart of the designer of the building. I mean, you can see perhaps that, that he or she uh, thinks that a, that a large kitchen would be Uh, beautiful and helpful. You can imagine that they, they suspect or hope that people would gather in that kitchen and lots of people are helping to cook. You make a big dining room envisioning things of people gathering to feast. But you cannot look at blueprints and tell anything about what the architect values personally. Blueprints are not for that purpose. They're not meant to communicate the character of the designer. But there was one time in human history where God was the building, the the architect of a building. And he didn't give blueprints, he explained it in his words and his message is built into the furnishings that we're going to study this morning. So this is the part of Exodus, I think, where people begin to lose interest. Up to this point, we've had some cool things, right? There's There's been plagues, there's been deliverance, there's been Mount Sinai, there's been the Ten Commandments. And most people come to this portion and go, well, that's the tabernacle. Let's move along. Well, We're not going to do that, and here's why we're not going to do it. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But more than that, that's certainly true. But God is still speaking. And here's the message. He says, I intend to dwell with my people. And so this morning, we're going to see that God intends to dwell in your heart, in holiness and mercy, as nourishment, and then as light. So first we begin with the fact that God intends to dwell in our hearts. If you've got your Bible still, go back to chapter 25. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate, And let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of its furniture, so you shall make it. And so Yahweh is really making a proposition for His people. He says, I'm going to live with you. In fact, that's what the tabernacle is for. God is going to pitch His tent right in the middle of the camp. And from the start you notice... That his dwelling with his people hinges on three things. It it, it hinges first on willing hearts, secondly on costly giving, and then thirdly on careful obedience. You can see the willing hearts immediately in verse 2. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. Now, why in the world do the people have the kinds of things that he's about to describe? Well, they have them because when they left Egypt, the Lord allowed them to plunder the people of Egypt. And so they take all of these treasures with them. And so he says, I gave them to you. Now I want you to open your hands and give them back to me. Uh, Do you think it's possible that that the high king of heaven could make a building on earth for himself? The one who spoke and there was light and trees and land and mountains, of course. It's not as if he needs their help. But as one writer says, he's delegating this opportunity to his people so that they receive the gift of experiencing generosity, of experiencing self-sacrifice. It's another way for them to participate in the relationship with the Lord. I wonder if you see giving that way, as an opportunity to see your own heart moved by a God who has first been generous to you and thereby to experience, even to to learn the blessing of generosity. Giving to the Lord is a way for God's people to learn to sacrifice something, to extend our own hands, to say, I want to be a part of worship. Incidentally, this is going to set a pattern which will continue not only through the Old Testament, but through the rest of the Bible. So there is a difference in the Scriptures between tithes and offerings. The tithe is the instruction that the Lord gives. I want the tenth, the first tenth that I give to you, just simply cut it off or harvest it or give it to me. Offerings are those things which are over and above that. And they always are contingent upon the Lord having moved your heart which should perhaps be a little bit concerning for some of us because you see what the Lord has done. is he's, He said, and we like this, the 10th, that's so clear. The offering is different because it requires that you and I should weigh our own hearts before the Lord and actually ask, Father, how have you been generous to me? How are you inviting me, even welcoming me to open my hands to give to you? That's why you'll hear me say the phrase, we are giving to the Lord His tithes and our offerings. God intends to dwell in your heart, and His offer to dwell with them hinges on willing hearts, but you notice it also hinges on costly giving. Take a look at verse 3. Here's the contribution. He goes through. He lists gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, uh, uh, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, many other things, including acacia wood, in fact, perhaps the only thing on the list that is not costly to them would be acacia wood. It's, it's a wood that's extremely abundant in the Sinai Peninsula, where they live at this moment. But it's going to be costly in a different way. See, if you want acacia wood, it's got to be harvested. And timber must be cut, and planks must be fashioned. It's going to require a labor of love that is different, but it's still costly, because it requires genuine effort. I wonder if you can see why that would matter to the Lord. He's offering to dwell with them. He's he's offering to be in their midst, literally to to tabernacle among them, but He wants them to be so moved by their own desire to enjoy His presence that cost is no longer the concern, but rather cost is the, the delight Some of you know that by experience. You give a gift to a loved one. And I'm talking about the kind of gift that you know is going to absolutely and completely delight the heart of the one that you give it to. Maybe it's an engagement ring. Maybe it's an autographed football. Maybe it's that pair of boots that you know they love or want. If you can afford it. If it does not financially cripple you. There's a moment in giving a gift where the cost actually becomes your delight and not your burden. I'll give you an illustration from my own childhood. I've told you many times my dad was pretty handy with woodworking. I was in about third or fourth grade when it occurred to my parents, perhaps the boy should have a desk in his room, something to do his homework on. And I, I suspect they could have gone to the store and purchased a desk for me. But instead, my dad determined that he wanted to build a desk for me. And the way he would do it, this is not four legs and a flat top. My dad wants to, to take solid oak and he wants to build every drawer with dovetail grooves so that it fits together beautifully. And when it comes time to sand it and stain it, he wants to sand it and stain it and then go back and sand it and stain it a second and third time so that it's utterly smooth. So I knew even in third or fourth grade, even as a child, I recognized this is perhaps the most costly possession that I own, not because I could sell it for so much, but because so much had been given in making the desk for me. And if I as a third or fourth grade boy could see that, how much more did my dad know the cost having labored for hours in the shop making this thing. See, that's exactly what the Lord intends to communicate here. God knows that it is such a joy to be a a giver. It's such a joy to know that what you have, have given to the Lord is, in fact, costly. You also recognize, don't you, that when you give to the Lord something that didn't cost you anything at all, Somehow, even if the gift is expensive, it doesn't feel like quite so great a sacrifice. And when you give something that costs a lot, it moves from your burden to your delight. How much more true is that when you give to the Lord? If you're willing to change the sheets, if you're willing to dust in the guest bedroom and vacuum and and wipe down the bathroom and scrub the toilet for a friend who is coming to stay overnight, well, here's a God who's coming to live in your midst. God intends to dwell in your heart, and His offer requires willing hearts and costly giving, but thirdly, careful obedience. Verse 8 contains only five words in Hebrew. They're really powerful. They're actually very simple. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then he says, exactly how I show you in the pattern, that's what I want you to do. Hebrew scholars here detect there's a, there's a tone of contingency even in the passage. God would not dwell with his people unless they were to invite him to properly be with them, and they would do the work to prepare for his inhabitants. So every stipulation matters. You wonder if that's because God is so demanding. Of course, he's going to be like this. He's like that homeowner that you can never get the house right for. No, no, no. That's not it at all. God's not desperate for a place to live on the face of the earth. It is because, as we read in Hebrews, everything that is to be built is to be a copy, a shadow of the one that is in heaven, because God wants this design to be so intricate and unique that it creates a longing, in fact, a hope for that which is in heaven. So the layout here is full of purpose, not just inside, but also outside, God wants it to sit in the middle of the camp so that they continually see it and they know that that the Lord is to be the center of our lives, even as we've built our tents around the big tabernacle. So God says, I want to dwell in your midst, and that requires willing hearts. It requires costly giving. It requires careful obedience. I can't help but wonder if you were in their position. Do you feel the weight of these instructions? And do they even in some sense concern you? I mean, in one sense, it's physical. Can we build a building that's precisely the way that God tells us, possibly? You see, there's nothing physical about God moving into your neighborhood. The bigger questions are really spiritual, aren't they? I mean, is my heart consistently willing? Is my giving sufficiently costly is my obedience perfectly careful and then if that's the standard of perfection that god would require well then how in the world is he ever going to come and dwell in my heart i don't actually have any hope So here in the Old Testament is the beginning of of salvation. Here's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. God intends to dwell within your heart, but your heart's not really a suitable neighborhood for the Holy One of heaven to come down and simply plant Himself there. And so first He came in flesh, and He dwelt among us as a man so that only in Christ is God able, in fact, willing to commune perfectly? Only in Christ is there a blood sacrifice that, that can really be called costly giving. Only in Christ is there a righteousness that's characterized by, by genuinely careful obedience to every instructions of God. Spiritually speaking, God will make this relationship happen by fulfilling His part but also by fulfilling your part. God's presence. God's presence, but how will I ever possess it? You will reach out. You will grab it by faith because the Lord God has made it possible through His Son, Jesus Christ, that God could dwell with sinners. So friends, grab hold of Christ. It's only when your heart When God changes your heart by taking away the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, that then the Holy Spirit moves in. God intends to dwell with his people, first in their heart, secondly in holiness and mercy. We're going to go back to the Bible, verse 10 of chapter 25. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. Shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark and carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain on the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits, and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above and overshadow the mercy seat with their wings and their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you commandments for the people of Israel. If God's going to dwell with His people, I think you'd expect that we would first go to instructions about the tabernacle. You wouldn't expect Him to begin with the, the furniture, and yet this ark is the most central piece inside the building. The Ark of the Covenant's a box about 45 inches long, about 25, 27 inches wide, about 27 inches high. If you have a, a good study Bible, you could probably turn there and see what they might have drawn up for you. There's an excellent picture in the ESV study Bible. So, I'm not going to go into great detail about what it would look like, but I simply would say that it is an ornate, beautiful box covered in, in gold, and it has rings on the sides where poles go in so that no one actually touches the, the, the ark itself, but it can be picked up and, and carried It also has feet on each side so that it never fully and completely rests on the ground. And all of this beautiful box is meant to communicate something of God's holiness. And then moreover, verse 16, he says, we're going to take the the testimony, that is the Ten Commandments on these two tablets. We're going to place it inside the ark because God's law will dwell here. And then secondly, the lid of the ark has two cherubim angels leaning forward, their wings spread, their heads facing forward and down, so that in the very center of the ark, their, their wings join together, all while God's law rests underneath that lid. It was Martin Luther who first used the term mercy seat to explain what is here the actual word is kaporit in Hebrew. It's probably not a great translation to say mercy seed. It's good. The word actually means to make atonement. So later in the book of Leviticus, this is actually the spot wherein the blood sacrifice is going to be made. When the priest comes in and he offers a sacrifice, first for his own sins and then secondly for the sins of his people, atonement for sins is made right where those wings join together of the cherubim. And perhaps the word seat is a little bit misleading in English. We think of it like it's a chair or like a throne. It's more like if I was to ask you, where is the seat of power? In the civil government, in the state of Alabama, you would say Montgomery. In the United States, it's in Washington, D.C. So here it is. Here's something that's going to happen right here. Verse 22, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubs that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I'll speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of God. You see, God's not going to meet with everyone. He is going to meet with one man, Moses. Moses will not have to climb Mount Sinai all the time to hear God speak. He's simply going to come into the tabernacle. And these images are meant to be so vivid. Because here's a mercy seat, which is kind of akin to a picture of God's throne. And it's the place from which God speaks. If you understand the images the law is placed inside the box and the lid is placed over top of the law so that the Lord speaks from the very spot where atonement and law come together, where holiness and mercy are blended. That's the spot from which God speaks. The message is loud and clear. Hear my unbending law and my extravagant mercy. Come together, so that the ark preaches the gospel. It's the same message for you today. That is, God intends to dwell with His people in holiness and mercy. That has not changed. But you see also that the ark is a copy of of heavenly things. There's no need for stone tablets. When Jesus came forward into the world, he carried forth not only God's law, but God's word, and he spoke it perfectly. No more need for a physical mercy seat. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ himself entered into the holy of holies, and there, on the true seat of atonement, Christ made the sacrifice. He spilled his own blood, and he didn't have to spill his blood to pay for his sins, because he had none. He spilled all all his blood for your sins and mine. You see, we are here today to worship the living God because Christ did what Moses never could do, to provide one full and final sacrifice because God really does intend to dwell with his people. But how? By grace, through faith, Jesus invites you into the presence of God so God alone mediates holiness and He speaks words of mercy and all of those words come from the mouth of Christ. God intends to dwell with His people in your heart in holiness and mercy and thirdly, as nourishment. If you take a look at verse 23, we'll read this portion next. You shall make a table of acacia wood, to cubits shall be its length a cubit its breadth and a cubit at half its height you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim and you shall make for, its, for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the corners at its four legs close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these, and you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with, with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly." See, what Hebrews said and what has just been said is there are two different rooms in the tabernacle. The the outer room is the the holy place. The inner room is the most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant dwells in the most holy place. Out here in the holy place, there's the golden lampstand. And there's this table of a bread of presence You remember, don't you, that when we looked at the false gods of the people of Egypt, that they truly and sincerely believed that the way that they would worship their God was to bring him food. That they would bring to him little pieces of meat and little pieces of fat. It's one of the ways that they thought that they could manipulate their local deities. That is not the message here. No, there are 12 loaves of bread which sit in the the presence of God And the priest is going to continually bring that bread in. Is it because God's hungry? Because he needs some bread? No. It is entirely symbolic. God doesn't need bread. He doesn't need food. You need bread. You need food. So you see, the bread is for the priest's. Alec Motier explains the symbolism. He says, the Lord is the nourisher of his priestly people. He's here as one who sustains, which is why there are 12 loaves because each loaf is meant to symbolize, I'll take care of that tribe and that tribe and that tribe and that tribe, and I will take care of them perfectly. One pastor explained it like this, the showbread symbolized God's constant awareness of their daily need. If they were ever tempted to doubt his providence, It reminded them that their needs were ever before him. God saw what they needed, and their needs were always on his mind. I wonder if you believe that. If you believe that your needs are always on God's mind. That his promise to dwell with you is not the promise of a distant father who's stingy, But of one who dwells with you in such constant intimacy that he's living, he's willing to give life, giving nourishment to your soul. I wonder if you believe that he actually sees the the spaces in which you hunger. Do you believe that he knows your daily needs? Do you doubt his providence? then here's a a beautifully ornate table with bread sitting in front of the presence of God, which actually is preaching a sermon to you and to me. It's a message of comfort. Not only does God see your need, He's actually the only one among us who sees your need perfectly. And He's the only one who can meet each of those needs. That's, of course, true physically. It's also true of every spiritual need. And Jesus understood this image, which is why he, standing on the Sea of Galilee, fed 5,000 people. He left the crowds later that night. He went across the sea. That's the walking on water scene. On the other side of the sea, the very next day, the crowds kept coming. And he realized, they're actually not coming because they trust me as Savior. They're coming because they want more bread. Like so many of us. They sought the Lord. They sought Christ simply to take care of their short-term needs. It's no accident that it's Passover time. So Jesus does not miss the opportunity to connect the dots. John six 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever Comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's it's tempting, isn't it, like them to deal with God in some sort of transactional way. God, I'll pray when I need you, and then you must meet my needs. God, I will come to church and, and then thereby you'll keep me from sinking away spiritually. God, I'll sin and and then you forgive me. And by doing that. By dealing with the Lord in this transactional way, it keeps Him at a transactional distance so that we might know Him and experience Him no better than the teller at the bank or the cashier at Kroger. God intends to dwell with His people. He intends to nourish your stomach, but more fully to nourish the deep places of your soul. The average person in the nation of Israel, was never going to see the bread of presence. They would never be able to come near. They would never be able to be reminded of the message. But you can. Because the bread of presence is Christ. And so you are able even now to draw near to the one who promises to be the bread of life. So here you can meditate on God's sustaining care. You can be constantly aware of his willingness to meet your needs. Sure, God intends to dwell with his people in your heart in holiness and mercy as nourishment, but then finally as light. So we're going to pick up at verse 31 and read through the end. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold... The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flowers on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their tray shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all the utensils and of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is shown you on the mountain. It's a little bit challenging for us to put together what is here. The tabernacle is to be a, a, a tent four layers thick. The inner layer is made of linen. The next layer is cloth, which is woven from goat's hair. The third layer is ram's skin. The outer layer is made from what we believe to be sea cows. Their hide spread over it. And then, of course, all of these four layers are pinned to the ground outside, which means that inside the tabernacle, it is completely dark. So, of course, there's a functional reason that God puts a lampstand in the holy place. The priest must enter there, and he's got to be able to see as he enters. And so, this golden lampstand gives light so he can do the work that he's called to do. Again, if you've got a good study Bible, you can see what the picture looks like. It's a functional piece. You can't get away from the descriptions, which are also intended to be incredibly beautiful if you if you know what a menorah looks like there's a single stem coming up there's three branches coming off so that you have seven pieces from which the light is burned so it is a beautiful piece functional and beautiful when you go shopping for furniture that's what you're looking for that's what I'm looking for furniture that's functional and also beautiful that works great for your house That is not sufficient for God's house. In other words, it's not enough that it should be functional and beautiful. The lampstand must also be symbolic. It must say something about the Lord. And so in the shape of a tree with with buds and blossoms and fruit, it actually captures every single phase of the life-giving pictures that point us right back to Eden where there was one tree which gave life in the Garden of Eden. It's also the place wherein God created life. So here's a picture that God is a a giver of, of life. And then there's also another image, of course, in the midst of all of that darkness. Here is one source of light. And you remember, too, in the Garden of Eden, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And you remember that there was no spiritual darkness in Eden at all until Adam sinned. So here's a light in the middle of a tabernacle that would otherwise be swallowed up in darkness. There is one source of light in the midst of this darkness to pierce the light. Oh, Moses totally gets the symbolism. Are you having trouble seeing it? He has met the Lord at the burning bush. He has been following with the people of Israel a pillar of fire, a cloud of smoke, and now he's up on top of the mountain, and the whole mountain is consumed with the light which looks to the people like a fire. It's a sermon all unto itself. The Lord is the source of life and light. The wages of sin is death. If you know Jesus... If you didn't know Jesus as your Savior, you would be sentenced to death. If God did not first shine the light of Christ into your heart, you would be overcome already with complete darkness. And you would only dwell in darkness. And it is from that reality that Jesus cries out in John chapter 8, and it seems random in John. He goes, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, this golden lampstand preaches a message to you and me today. God intends to dwell with you, but He finds in your heart too much darkness to move into the neighborhood of your heart. How will He live with you? How will He dwell there? He sends forth His Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit turns on the light. In those dark places of your soul, He shined light in there so that you could reach out spiritually and embrace Jesus Christ. The tabernacle is not just a tent. These are no ordinary furnishings. This is a sign of God's promise. God intends to dwell with His people in heart, in holiness, and mercy in nourishment, and as light. All of which points us to the God who is willing to come near. And the table tells us that same message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rich pictures which are true and real in the Old Testament as they point forward, not just to the realities that we enjoy in Christ, but even as they are types or copies or pictures of the things which are in heaven. And so we pray, having heard your word, that you would fill us with a deeper longing, that you would not let your word fall on deaf ears, but that you would bind it to our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to...